Laura Amel Smith was my grandmother. She lived to the ripe old age of 94. I tell people she always cooked with bacon grease and butter and all that stuff, and it finally killed her at 94. Uh, she was a far farm girl from Missouri, my mother's mother, and uh, Laura was special in my heart. Uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, her and my grandfather in North Denver there when I was young. And uh, one reason I loved to stay with there is my grandma Smith had two pie cherry trees in her backyard, and we would help her uh, pick the cherries when they were ready, and then she would make cherry pie. And uh, what was wonderful about that is my grandfather, if there was a pie in the house, he demanded to have it for breakfast. And uh, so we had pie for breakfast, which I never got at my house, and... Uh, <laughs> at least that I can remember, but I just love the idea of having pie for breakfast. I still love that idea. And uh, so Laura Smith was uh, someone who could really bake, too. She was quite a cook, and uh, she could bake pies and make them, and uh, she would make a beautiful pie. And I was thinking about this, and I read an article by a science writer, John Lennox, uh, about uh, the parts of science and uh, when you think about scientists, they could take my grandmother's cherry pie and they could dissect it, if you will, and they would tell you all sorts of things about that pie. The nutritionist would tell you about the number of calories and carbohydrates and uh, the sugar content of that uh, delicious pie. The biochemist would inform us of the structure of the proteins involved in that pie, the fats, etc., in that pie. Uh, the physicist would analyze the cake in terms of the fundamental particles uh, involved with uh, the structure of that pie. And the mathematician, no, no doubt, would offer us a set of eloquent, eloquent uh, equations to describe the, the behavior of the particles of that pie. And yet, in all of that, we know that the parts, the whole is much larger than just the parts. And we wouldn't know. We would know how this pie was made because of uh, the description by various scientists how it was made and how the various ingredients related to each other. Uh, but if you asked all the experts the why question, they would probably not be able to answer it. Why did Laura Smith make that pie? And, of course, we know that she knew more about that than any scientist in the world because she made it for a purpose. She made it for a purpose. And uh, all the scientists in the world would not be able to answer that question. Only Laura Smith could answer the question as to why she would make that pie. All I know is I was glad she did, but uh, that's what I know about that. But uh, no amount of scientific analysis will enlighten us and, you know, it's something about this thing we call the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. There's various descriptions in Scripture of what we call the church, but just the reminder that the church is not buildings. It is made up of people, of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we've just seen the Apostle Paul describe us as stones being built into a temple, a holy temple, a place where God lives, if you can imagine that. And, of course, the picture comes out of the Old Testament where God uh, dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple and uh, in the holy of holies, and yet he is chosen in this age, in the church age, with the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2, to dwell in his people. And Jesus Christ has begun the church, and in Acts 2 we saw the beginning of the church. But here in Ephesians chapter 3, as we continue our study through chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gets personal 
you've noticed as Keevan read this passage, he moves away from uh, some of the doctrinal wealth of our position in Christ, and now he's talking about his personal ministry, if you will. And he talks about the ministry of grace, the mystery of grace, and the message of grace is basically the breakdown of verses 1 through 7. But in this paragraph, if you noticed, as Keevan read that, he uses the term mystery three different times. If you notice in verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. And in verse 4, my insight into the mystery of Christ. And verse 9, and bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Uh, Mystery is an important word here. And oftentimes we think of uh, a mystery as something that Agatha Christie writes or something that's on the mystery channel at BBC or something, but uh, an English mystery is something that's dark, obscure, secret, puzzling, something to be solved. It's inexplicable inexplicable, and sometimes incomprehensible. Uh, That's our idea when we hear that word mystery. And yet in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, in Christianity, the Greek word that's used here, which we get our English word mystery from, is, means something altogether different, and it goes like this. It's still a secret. It is no longer a closely guarded but an open revelation from God himself. Originally, the Greek word referred to the truth in which someone had been initiated. Indeed, it came to be used of the secret teachings of the heathen mystery religions, teachings that were restricted to initiates. And by the way, we have faith systems and cults around the world who still practice that way, that only the initiated understand the darker and deeper secrets of that faith system. But in Christianity, no such thing exists because it's not reserved for the spiritual elite. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, It's for every believer in Jesus Christ. Christian ministries are truth which are above Uh, Human comprehension and discovery at first have been revealed by God and they belong to the whole church. And the Apostle Paul is going to open that up for us. Very simply, uh, it simply means when you see mystery in the New Testament, it means a previously unrevealed truth which now God has revealed. He has disclosed it to us through the writings of the Apostle. So when you think about the church, and of course, there are a lot of people who do a lot of analysis of the church in America, the body of Christ, you know, it's difficult to quantify. There's all sorts of people quantifying different things, putting it on a spreadsheet, but yet it doesn't tell the whole story. We have to go to scripture to get the whole story about what the body of Christ is. Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a British uh, writer, he wrote these words. He said, I think the church is relevant. Because if Christianity is true, and if the church is in some degree a custodian of Christianity, then it must be the custodian of the truth, and truth can never be irrelevant. Truth can never be irrelevant. And so when I hear the accusation that the church is irrelevant to culture today, that is not true. Uh, It may seem to be irrelevant to what goes on around us in our society, and yet if we are the we are the the keepers of the truth, the custodian of the doctrines of Christianity. Truth is never irrelevant. In verses 1 through 3, we see the ministry of grace, the ministry of grace. Notice the Apostle Paul begins for this reason. In other words, 
what has gone before in the context. He is kind of summarizing. This is called the structural marker in the text. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Remember, he's been talking about the Jewish-Gentile split and how God has come, Jesus Christ has come, to unify that into a new race, if you will. And that is called the church. He's not making the church an Israel. He's not making an Israel the church or the Jewish people a church. But together we are a new people, and that's what he's emphasizing, and that's what he is going to expand upon in these verses. But the Apostle Paul begins, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then uh, there's a parenthesis, if you will. It's called a parenthetical structure from verses 2 through 13, where he, he deviates into another thought, and he expands upon that. And then in verse 14, notice the same beginning. For this reason, I bow my knees. He's getting ready to pray for them. Needs some more explanation, which he gives us in verses 2 through 13. And then he resumes his prayer, which is, takes up the last half of chapter 3. And remember that Ephesians is built upon our wealth we have in Christ in chapters 1 through 3. And then our walk or our practice of Christianity, what difference the wealth means in how we live out our lives in chapters 4 through 6. So the Apostle Paul starts to pray, but then he stops and he continues writing out this explanation. And he talks about the ministry of grace. He's talking about his own uh, gifts that he has received as an apostle of Jesus Christ and how his teaching is done. So we receive grace sometimes through the suffering of others. Notice that he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's interesting. We know that he's a prisoner of Caesar in Rome when he writes this. When he writes Ephesians, he's in a Roman prison or under house arrest in Rome awaiting trial. He has been imprisoned for some three years over in Caesarea and now in Rome. He's been sent to Rome to meet before Nero, before, the, before Caesar, excuse me. And so he is suffering for the gospel. But he never calls himself a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of, of the Jewish opposition. He always refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus or a, a, a synonymous uh, thing. And it's very literal and it's very spiritual is what he's declaring there. And so we see here that even though he's a prisoner to other human beings, he actually is there by the call of God and Jesus Christ in himself and is there for the sake of the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? And if you're not of Jewish descent, you are a Gentile. And so Paul's life was not controlled by Rome, by the Jews, by the Caesar. His life was under direct sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about the sovereignty of God before. And very basically, it can be defined as God is working out in control and working out all things at all times, in all places, for his glory and for the good of his people. For his glory and the good of his people. This is important because if you become a prisoner of your circumstances and situations in your life, you are going to be miserable. Even as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you allow your circumstances, situations to imprison you, you will be miserable. If you allow the actions of other people to imprison your heart and mind, you're going to have a hard time enjoying the blessings that God has given you. However, if you come to the place where you fully understand that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the controller of your life and your future, 
You can face any trial, any situation, any person, any problem with confidence knowing the Lord is in control. That is where Paul was, and that is where we need to be as well. And, of course, there are reams of information about the martyrs through the ages who gladly shed their blood for the cause of Jesus Christ because they knew that he was in control and he was allowing this. So we are we receive grace sometimes through the suffering of others. And here the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, was looking ahead to the Gentiles in the church. Verse 2, we are believers who are believers are grace managers. Look at verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Isn't it interesting that he looks at God's grace and his reception of it there as a stewardship issue. We think of stewardship as a giving issue in in the sense of financial giving. And really it's the idea. Stewardship is one who takes care of something for the owner, for someone else. And the Apostle Paul is saying that God has given me this unmerited favor. He has given me a purpose, a plan for my life, and I have to be a steward of that. I have to take care of it well because it really ultimately does not belong to me. It belongs to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've ever thought about the grace you've received as a responsibility in the sense that you are a steward of that grace. Now, each of us are called to different things. Each of us have different opportunities. We can't teach like the Apostle Paul or write like the Apostle Paul, and yet we do have a story. We have a message, and that's why here at Grace Point, from time to time, we have testimonies that people give about how God saved them. That is being a steward of the grace that you've received, of your salvation. We are managers of that. In 1994, there was a Cuban named Alex Davales, and he was on a rickety boat with 27 other Cubans drifting towards Florida, trying to escape uh, the communist regime in Cuba. And he arrived and uh, flourished. And two years later, he saw 14 exhausted, penniless Cuban rafters wash wash ashore in Key Largo. And he said it just reopened his whole memory. It felt like he had arrived there brand new again. The 25-year-old dishwasher at that time, who earned $197 a week, walked home. He gathered up all the presents from under his Christmas tree. It was right at the holidays. He gave all his shirts and other clothing to all the new arrivals. And when interviewed, he said they were wet and cold. And uh, Alex took off his shirt and gave it to them. A stewardship of his freedom, a stewardship of the blessings he had received in this country. Paul is the steward of God's grace, and it's been given to us as Gentiles. The proof of Christianity is not a book, but it is a life. The power of Christianity is not a creed, but it is a Christian character. And whenever, wherever you see life that has been transformed by the grace of God, you see a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are stewards of the grace we have received. In verse 3, grace is revealed and proclaimed to us. Look at verse 3 with me. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before, in brief. Now, God reveals his truth to us in three different ways, according to Scripture. First of all, there is what we call general revelation or creation. When you go out on a starry night and are overwhelmed by the immensity of the heavens or when you go to the Grand Canyon or... Uh, when you go and, and see something beautiful in nature, that is God's testimony, revelation to you, according to Romans chapter 1, that there is God. 
and that's called general revelation. Then there's specific revelation, which is the word of God superintended and carried down to us through the generations that we have an authoritative, authentic word of God translated from the original manuscripts with, uh, with accuracy and that uh, that is specific revelation of God's will. And then there's special revelation. The third thing is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God-man came from heaven, revealed the will of the Father, did the will of the Father, and so we receive the revelation of God's grace in verse 3 there. And so God revealed and proclaimed it to us. His revelation was made known, and his mystery was made known. And here we come across that word mystery. And the Apostle Paul is going to explain to us later what that is, but he's written about it in brief before in this letter where he talks about the Jewish-Gentile union. And we, again, don't fully appreciate that. But in the first century, there was such a divide between those two races. All the Gentiles were against the Jews, and the Jews thought the Gentiles were dogs. And so how could it be that you could combine these two? And so the Apostle Paul is telling us. And in verses 4 and 5, there's the mystery of grace, the mystery of grace. It's given to change lives. Look at verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He uses the word again. So when we read, we can understand divine revelation given to Paul. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit to lead us in the truth, to give us understanding of the word of God, which has been given to us. And we can understand these, this mystery, which he's going to detail for us in a moment. But it was almost unknown in previous generations in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been made revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Again, uh, notice the order, the apostles and prophets. Apostles were ones designated by Jesus Christ and sent ones. It's a technical term. They're sent out to proclaim the truth and foretell the truth, and the prophets would do the same. Now, these are New Testament prophets. These are not Old Testament prophets, and we can find some of those in the New Testament. But God uh, revealed his grace to them. He revealed it and it changed his lives. It was given to the Apostle Paul. In the Old Testament, they could not see the church age coming. I've explained it many times before. It's like looking at the mountain range, like the Stuart Mountains, and we see the peaks, but we don't see the valley in between. And the Old Testament prophets, when they were foretelling what God was going to do, the first advent of Jesus and then the second advent of Jesus, it was like two peaks. But the prophets in the Old Testament could not see the valley in between, which is the church age in which we live today. And so it was not known to previous generations. And it was revealed, though, at this time because of God's care for that. Uh, then there's the message of grace in verses 6 through 7. We are accepted and included by grace. Accepted and included by grace. Look at verse 6 with me. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, to be specific, and here he goes to describe this mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow wearers, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. In other words, he has combined the two into the blessings that he has been describing in chapters 1 and 2. All the riches we have, the wealth we have in Christ. We are fellow heirs of the same blessing, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promises uh, that uh, God has given to us. And so that is what God has done, the message of grace. 
is reading about Lou Johnson. Lou Johnson was a 1965 World Series hero for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I don't remember back that far, but that's what I read about is what he said. He tried for uh, 30 years to recover his championship ring, which he lost to drug dealers in 1971. Lou Johnson had a drug and alcohol problem, and it cost him everything from that magical season, including his uniform, his glove, the bat he used to hit the winning home run in the deciding game. And uh, Dodger president Paul Graziano learned that Johnson's World Series ring was about to be auctioned off on the Internet, and he immediately wrote a check in the thousands of dollars and bought the ring before any uh, bids were posted. He did it for Johnson when the former Dodgers outfielder had been unable to do that for himself. There's no way he could have bought that back. Johnson, who was 66, had been drug-free for years and the Dodger community relations employee. He wept when he was given the gold ring. He felt, it felt like a piece of me had been reborn. You know, we could go around this room and countless believers in Jesus Christ could testify to a spiritual rebirth as a result of the price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross for us. He did it for something that we could not do ourselves. That is why it is called grace, the message of grace. We are accepted and included by grace. In verse 7, we can have confidence in God's grace by his power. In verse 7, he writes, To which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. We went back and reread chapter 1, which I'd encourage you to do. It's very descriptive of God's power, what he can do. There's nothing in our lives which he cannot overcome. And the very fact, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you believe in him for everlasting life is a sign of God's power. What a miracle, because on our own, we cannot save ourselves. My question this morning is, how big is your salvation? You know, if we had to measure salvation, how big is it? How much does it weigh? Uh, you know, just those are not so weird of questions. I was reading about different measuring systems, you know, different systems of measurement. We're familiar with the standard system, and then there's the metric. Some of you are good with metric systems. And uh, we measure height and length and weight and all those things in terms of inches, yards, meters, pounds. Uh, we might weigh objects in pounds and ounces. We divide time from millennia in a way down to nanoseconds, one billionth of a second. We measure temperature down to absolute zero, zero degrees uh, Kelvin or minus 459.7 degrees Fahrenheit. That's absolute zero. Uh, but there are other measurements out there, and I was not aware of this until I started looking at it. Have you measured something in the length in smoots, S-M-O-O-T-S, a smoot. Now, remember this because you may want to use a smoot instead of a yardstick, okay? If you are a student at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, every student there knows what a smoot is. A smoot is a unit of length equal to 5 feet 7 inches. 5 feet 7 inches. How did they arrive at that? Well, in 1958, a 5 foot 7 inch tall fraternity pledge named Oliver Smoot agreed to be used to measure the Harvard Bridge, which connects Boston to Cambridge. After repeatedly lying down on the bridge and having his position marked in chalk, it turned out that the bridge was 364.4 smoots and an ear long, is what they said. 
In fact, it used to be with Google Maps, you could do a trans translation over to smoots rather than feet or miles. And I understand if you go to that Harvard Bridge today, it's still marked out on the bridge. In fact, when they rebuilt the bridge, when they laid the concrete across the bridge, instead of cutting uh, you know, the frost lines through the cement every six feet, they did it every 5.7 feet in a smoot. And uh, so that's one way you can measure length is in a smoot. And in fact, when you go to school, if you're in school now, just uh, if you have math, maybe you should use smoots. And uh, you have my permission. I don't know about your teacher, but you have mine. So that's one measurement. There's a, you know, when we say just a moment, have you ever said that? Just a moment when somebody asks you to do something and you say just a moment, did you know that you're using a measurement of time? You're not being sneaky, but you are giving them precise time because a moment was a measurement of time used during the medieval period that was roughly equal to one and a half minutes. And so, men, when you tell your wife uh, just a moment uh, or she tells you just a minute or a moment, it'll be a, a, a one and a half minutes. And so you'll be held to that. And uh, the Scoville, and of course, I think Keevan Gwynn is familiar with the Scoville uh, measurement. A Scoville scale is used to measure the amount of capacian in chilies because it's important to know the exact temperature of the inferno that's raging in your mouth when you eat a pepper or a chili. Uh, and so, for example, the Scoville rates a pimento at 100 to 500, cayenne pepper at 30,000 to 50,000, a Carolina reaper, which is a pepper, a million, and a law, uh, let's see, uh, law enforcement pepper spray is 5 million on the scale of the Scoville scale. And so how do you measure salvation? Again, we can apply all sorts of measurements to it, and yet it is bigger than that because it's infinite, it is eternal, and Paul is telling us here that we have the, the message of grace because it is, was a mystery of grace and because God has opened our eyes to the truth. And so this morning, as you think about salvation, do you have eternal life? That is the question. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians is writing to those who have already believed in Jesus for their everlasting life. And if you've never trusted in him, never believed in him for everlasting life, you can do it right where you're seated. Because Jesus Christ gives that offer. It's the free gift of salvation. It is by salvation by grace through faith. And it is not anything else that you can add to it. It is unmerited favor, and you can trust him for your eternal life today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you.